Some years ago, I came across this writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman, a co-founder of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And what he said continues to inspire how my heart inclines to the practice of equanimity, which is what I want to speak about this evening. And this is from his collection of meditations entitled, Deep is the Hunger. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? Seeing the world with quiet eyes, that's one of the subjective experiences of equanimity, seeing the world with quiet eyes, a calm, quiet, inner balance, while still staying totally connected with everything that's happening in the world and in ourselves, without avoiding it, running away from it, uh, trying to fix everything, but first, really staying connected with the suffering inside of us and outside of us. It's such an important subject to reflect on, this subject of equanimity, because in the speed of this electronic and information age that we live in, we're bombarded by so much, by an overwhelming amount of news about the vulnerability of the environment and, of course, of human life, hunger and social injustice, the vulnerable economic and political situation that we live in, not just here in the U.S. and Canada and uh, the South America, but all over the world. Situations around the world where there's tragedy and loss. These are constantly pulling our attention up and down, up and down our hearts go. We dwell on the negative a lot by reacting with fear, hatred, blame, and ill will. Of course, there's a lot of compassion, and um, we can't deny that, we can't overlook that. But we also have to admit that there's a lot of unwholesome, negative reactivity when we hear and see things about what goes on out there in the world, how people are handling it or not handling it, just ignoring it. We want to distance ourselves from that suffering a lot. I was just um, listening to something, uh, a program on Bill Moyers today, and he talked about, um, it was an old program that I was interested in, but he talked about how we live in this culture of escapism how it's so prevalent, because we want to escape and to avoid the unpleasantness that we feel. He talked about the unpleasantness of life, but we see by sitting here and looking at ourselves and what's going on in our hearts that we really want to avoid the unpleasantness in our own hearts. I know even Steve and I, we say, let's go to a movie. I'm tired of watching the movie of my own mind, you know, looking for something good to entertain us. We live in this entertainment uh, society as well. So to distance ourselves from all that suffering, we're not only uh, looking for entertainment of all kinds, but our consumer society lures us with opportunities to encourage the obsession of wanting, of accumulating, of fueling and normalizing a mind of addiction and craving. I mean, this is how it is. If you thought you were going to come to the Dharma and listen to beautiful talks of bliss and ease, well, you know by now. (laughs) Many of these are universal conditions that are just as prevalent today as they were in the time of the Buddha. Only in the time of the Buddha there were different things that drew them to distract people from the difficulties they felt in their hearts. 
Um, David Loy is a Buddhist scholar and Zen teacher, and he laid out some of his views for our consideration. I want to uh, lay them out to you as well. And perhaps they're not all totally true because I can see the, uh, the possibility in them of these areas that benefit us in our lives. But also, he says, we live in a culture where our economic system institutionalizes greed. The military system institutionalizes ill will and fear. But of course, it also protects us. And the media, media institutionalizes delusion. There's a lot of untruths are kind of, you know, trying to get around the truth and finding an angle that will help us believe in more buying and more doing and more getting. So this is greed, hatred, and delusion, the three roots of suffering all around us. We live in this world totally um, surrounding us. And so, of course, it's triggering us, <laughs> pulling us, convincing us, normalizing it all the time. The three work together, actually, to reinforce one another. So it's understandable that we feel vulnerable. We feel agitated and anxious in our lives. It's understandable that so many more people want to come to retreat. It was interesting that in the downturn of the economy, uh, at least in the U.S., that uh, we thought, you know, being connected to so many retreat centers, that there wouldn't be so many people coming to retreat. But actually, there were more people coming to retreat because of all the anxiety, the anguish that people felt, I guess, more surrounded by and maybe could, just looking for a way some relief, some way to understand life in a deeper way. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions that we are constantly feeling in the flux of. These are wanting praise and not wanting criticism. This is praise and blame. Wanting gain and not wanting loss. Gain and loss. Wanting approval and not wanting rejection and disgrace. This is fame and disrepute. Wanting happiness, of course, and not wanting suffering, pleasure and pain. So the eight worldly conditions are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, or joy and sorrow. And all the, all the ways that it triggers the wanting and not wanting inside our hearts. So we're not only in the flux of what's going on in the outer conditions of life, in the winds of life, but we're, we're really right in the middle of, in the flux of what goes on in our hearts in relationship to all of that. Constantly, we're asking you in your practice here, yes, so you, you, you're remembering this about your life. How do you feel about it? What's your inner relationship to that outer experience? Over and over again, you feel the pain in the body. You don't want the pain. Do you know what's happening in your heart in relationship to the pain? So there's this constant turning you towards knowing what's going on in your mind in relationship to how you see the world and how you see yourself in the world what your conditions are in the world, and how you're relating to them inwardly. This is our practice here, together. Even the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, I read recently in one of the articles, many articles that sent to me, um, he says, I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. For example, when I am up here on this throne teaching, from time to time, somewhere in the back of my mind, there appears the thought, how am I doing? <laughs> it was really good for me to read this. <laughs> how are people going to react to this? How are they going to praise me? Maybe not. 
oh, it's even there, oh, <laughs> maybe not. That did not go well. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, now that, now that I am here on this throne transmitting the Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected by this, by this and that, by the eight worldly concerns, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow. We see it on a worldly level and, of course, on a personal level. And that's what we're looking at when we come to a retreat like this. Nowadays, all of us, in one way or another, are asking ourselves important questions. Um, there's this thing called um, burnout, you know, compassion burnout, where we feel like, we, how can we handle it anymore? You know, we're, we're just too open to how the suffering is going in the world and so open to suffering of those close to us. And of course, what we're trying to get closer to in a retreat like this is the suffering of our own hearts. How can we maintain a balance of staying attentive yet compassionate towards ourselves when we see that how we react to the outer world is really a big part of our suffering? How can we know our inner landscape as well as we know the outer landscape? What are we doing in a retreat such as this to learn to give ourselves permission to be with that inner landscape and explore, accept what's really happening, happening to us, to really open to the changing realities of our hearts and of our minds, opening to our humanness in the most courageous way we know how. I remember in the very beginning of my Dharma experiences um, when Manindra told me, I was saying to him, I remember the very place in, in my living room in the little town I lived in, in Hali'imaili in Maui, and I said, how am I supposed to sit down here and look at what's going on in my heart when everything around me is going on and I see so much suffering? And, you know, I worked at that time in a cemetery and in a mortuary, helping people go through the death process of their loved ones. And um, I said, it's really hard for me to sit down here and figure out, you know, what am I going to do with all this? How am I going to help? These, this is just a small community, the little counseling business that I was in. And he said to me, the Buddha said that you can conquer all the, all the armies of the world, and still the greatest army to conquer would be your own heart, your own mind. And that's when you really would feel confident and clear about your life, just looking within. Of course, he said it in his own way. So to be mindful of our experience and to live with all the fluctuations and vicissitudes of the world and our, uh, the outer world and our inner world, we need that quality called equanimity. We need this quality to navigate both terrains, our relationship with the outer world and our relationship with our own inner world. Equanimity implies balance, but it's not this subjective balance of feeling like we're on a razor's edge, and if we tilt a little bit to one side, we'll fall over and lose our balance, or tilt to the other side, we'll lose that balance. It doesn't feel that tenuous when you really feel the experience of equanimity. Because equanimity is felt as a spacious balance. It's like having a wide stance and also a wide-angled view of life, which includes not just the outer life, but our relationship with the outer life and our relationship with our inner life. It's a big space that can contain everything without avoiding it, without pushing it away, without turning away and curling up and ignoring it. 
but it's opening to all the pleasure and pain and everything in between. It's really a high bar. That's why equanimity in terms of the Brahma Viharas is called the king or the queen, the crown of all of these uh, divine abodes. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity is the highest of them all. To survive well as a human being, we need a big heart, a big space to ignore, to not ignore it, but to accept it all. And when we do this, when we're not avoiding, and we're not uh, by turning away and curling up in a ball and saying, I can't do this, I can't open to this, or we're not striking out by um, aversion or attachment to how we think it should be, there can be a lot of clarity because we're, we're just, we're able to see things as they are, not run away from it. Of course, when we're ignoring, we're not seeing clearly. When we cover it up with the delusion of, I think it should be this way, you know, that kind of self-righteous indignation, which has a lot of delusion in it, and of course, a lot of wanting, we can't see clearly. What, what we can see is only our own judgments and opinions. And then, of course, if we don't like it, we, we push away, we strike out at it if we don't like it. So there's no clarity in any of that, no clarity at all when there is attachment, aversion, when there is delusion, ignorance. But when we can really open and say, okay, this is how it is right now in this moment, or this is how this situation is in our family, in our workplace, or this is how the sad situation that we find ourselves in living in this time of the Earth's development and uh, how it is on this planet Earth. When we can really open to it, then we have the strength to really be of benefit to the world. When praise and blame, gain and loss, all are part of the conditions of life. They arise, they pass away. And in between, there's constant change. Birth and death as well. We're able to accept that more. It's said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything, yet possess nothing, not hold on, not cling to how it is, how we think it should be. I witness this very strong, deep, unconditional love. Um, someone who had a very steady balance, a friend of ours who lived on Maui, and who, uh, she, she and her husband moved away. But she had a Dharma teaching uh, of these vicissitudes of life and coming to it with more and more equanimity that helped her through very, very trying times. So she's, she and her husband have given me permission to tell this story. A few years ago, one of her grown sons disappeared. He was in his early 20s, and the family did their best to find him. He was nowhere to be found. They didn't know if he was still alive or dead. They had a search party looking for him all over Maui and in the oceans around. Uh, they contacted his friends. His friends, either they didn't know or they wouldn't tell. And so they were in this complete mystery and conundrum. What are they going to do? They kept trying, of course, and then they finally said they just had to let it be, and if something was going to come forth, then they would act on it. So she told me that she held a deep inner vigil with a lot of patience and steadiness in her heart, waiting and just opening to any possibility. So they waited for one, maybe there was two years. I can't remember the timing. It seemed so long, and yet it did seem quite short in looking back. There was, of course, a great loss for her. It was a great, great loss. She had 
uh, three children, and um, I don't know if it was the eldest, but at least this was the eldest son. There was a lot of mystery to it. There was a lot of sorrow. It was very, very painful for her. She attended a lot of retreats during that time with us on Maui. And at, during that time, I, I was offering, at, at times, the equanimity practice. And one of, the, um, one of the phrases that I offered to her was, all beings have their own journey, though we may not know what it is or understand it. Especially for our children. It, it's a phrase that I came to with my own children. It, it just started out with all beings have their own journey. Um, and we don't know what it is. You know, there are causes and conditions in their own karmic stream that are a mystery to us and, and even to them. And um, it, it comes from uh, way, way, way back. Not, we can't even tell from this life where it may, may have come from. So we don't understand it. And to just, just sort of surrender to that. We can't understand it at all with our loved ones, with our children. How it unfolds in their life is a mystery. So eventually, just going through it all, and, and they decided to sell their beautiful home on Maui. And um, they, they have a daughter. They had a daughter living in Europe at that time, and she was about to have a baby. So they were on their way around the world with what they collected from their sale they decided they might as well do what they wanted to do, was travel around the world, go through Asia, then get to Europe, and be there for the birth of their first grandchild, kind of to help them through their sorrow in a way, very deep sorrow. Just before they left, her son, who had disappeared, reappeared. And there was so much joy you know, but they, they were on their way already. They, they had decided to go. But there was so much joy and so much relief. And so after the experience of great, great loss, there was this great gain. After sorrow, there was this great joy. This, that those vicissitudes of life, and especially with a child, those of you who've had loved ones, you know, disappear, and they say, you know, when it's, they disappear, when the young die before their elders, it's, it's kind of like the wrong timing. And it's really difficult. It's more difficult than anyone, even if you're a mother or father now, it's difficult to imagine, even if you've gone through it already. So they experience so profoundly this gain and loss, this joy and sorrow, this arising and passing away of life. And so with that, they continued on their journey and because it was already planned and they went through Asia. And while they were in Asia, her partner had a medical diagnosis that was not good. So I never got permission to talk about this, so I'll just say it wasn't good. He was on the brink. And um, so they performed surgery in Asia with him. And so that was pretty scary for them, not to be home and to just open themselves to um, that experience in an Asian country. It turned out he was okay after that. So there was a lot of fear, then there was a lot of relief and a lot of gratitude because he was all right through that. She had her own challenges. Okay, this, his challenge was in one part of Asia, then they were in India, and she was almost losing her eyesight. I mean, this, this couple had it all in just a few short years. So she was, she was uh, going blind somehow. She didn't know, she couldn't see, she didn't know what was going on. So they had in India to go see, uh, get some medical advice. And so she had to go through a surgery in India. That, that would be really scary. I'm for, I mean, it's scary enough to do it in your own, you know, country, but this was, they, they didn't have a lot of confidence, but it turned out that they, 
they eventually, she was all right, and uh, they were very grateful, and very grateful for the expertise of those doctors there. So it was another vicissitude. And then they arrived with their daughter in Europe, and the daughter gave birth to a beautiful child. And so there was joy in their life. You know, there was this kind of unexpected um, temporary um, experience of death in their life. And then there was birth, that kind of vicissitude. So while they were there in Europe, um, Spain or Portugal, I forgot where it was exactly, they got this news that the other son, the younger son, younger than the son who had disappeared, the son whom she had a very active Buddhist uh, life with, that she shared the um, teachings of the Shambhala teachings uh, in the Tibetan tradition with, that all of a sudden he had this um, unexpected death. And again, I, I don't have permission to describe that. So just it, he died. And, and that was final, of course, you know. He didn't just disappear and reappear. He actually died. And so that was, you know, ineffably hard. You just can't, uh, you know, as a mother, we can have that kind of empathy as a father, as a mother, as a human being. But in, in her heart, it was just so hard, of course. So it was after one of these retreats, actually, um, right here in Cloud Mountain. We went down to, to where our daughter lives in Tualatin. And um, they met us for dinner there. And so we had dinner together. And this was right after she had the service for her son here in this area, because he, he went to school in this area, so that he had a lot of friends, so had the service for him here. And at the dinner, she said to me, um, she owed her life and her steadiness, her balance when she went through all this, her openness to the Dharma. She said it saved her life. It, it helped her to stay in the midst of all of it without falling into you know, the rabbit hole of, of sorrow where she couldn't be of help to herself or anyone else. And then she wrote an email to, to us, and, um, and I'm quoting her with her permission. She said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing Alex alongside the love and joy of who he was. Now just, you know, holding both at the same time. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger. And I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. Just staying, when she said I'm staying connected, she meant she was staying connected with the loss and the joy. Not making one better than the other. So all this time, through the ups and downs, as she stayed connected, she understood deeply with a grace that is beyond, that there are unknowable causes and conditions that give rise to situations in our lives that we can't control, that we can't understand. And this is true for almost every situation we look at in life when we can't understand our partners, our children, our bosses, our co-workers, uh, our teachers, when we can't understand what's going on. It's from countless unknowable causes and conditions. The unfolding of a person's life is a result of untraceable, unknowable, countless causes and conditions. Can we remember this every day with everyone we know when we look at them? This is what equanimity 
is asking of us if we can understand this every day of our lives. It's said that the proximate cause for equanimity to arise is understanding the nature of karma. That's why it's so important, as we gave instructions this morning, which were the most important instructions of this whole retreat, the instructions on intention, on how to see intention in your own mind. (coughs) And that's what this whole retreat was leading up to. That's why it's so important that you come to the 8.30 sitting. The proximate cause for equanimity to arise is understanding the nature of karma, recognition that actions bear results which affect us, and in effect, that we create our own future world of experiences. Because what has already happened is, you know, resultant karma. It's karma that's coming up already, that's in the process of what we've seen in the past or what we see now in this moment that's unfolding itself. How we react to that moment is the karma that's causing future events to arise. So it's really important to understand karma. And the proximate cause for equanimity to arise is the understanding of the nature of cause and effect, the nature of karma. So it's not only about the result of past actions and and words and intentions that we put out there. It's also concerned with creating the proximate and future moments experiences. And karma's constantly changing depending on our response to conditions that arise. Sometimes the metaphor for equanimity is of a sky. It describes what it feels like for the heart and mind to be infinitely spacious so that it can contain all the dualities and diversities of this world in different ways. This is all part of life, of all part of birth and death and everything in between. Can we see it all with quiet eyes, is what equanimity is asking of us. In an experiential way, equanimity can also be defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. We do have influence over events, but most of our life, we're not entirely in control. We must do what we can do, but we're not entirely in control. There are countless, innumerable causes and conditions that are causing this moment to arise in the particular way that it does. Of course, we need to put in our our wholesome action and words and intentions in the world. But to think that we have control over the results of what our actions are is just what we call wrong view. It's not going to happen the way we think it's going to happen. It may actually happen better than we think. (laughs) That's a possibility. But again, that doesn't mean that we do nothing. So I want to keep saying that because oftentimes people hear this uh, teaching on equanimity and they think, oh, it's just about standing back and saying this is how it is and being a doormat to life. But it's not that at all. It's able to stand back and see life as it is and to see it clearly and then to know our inner life intimately enough so we know that if it's unwholesome in our inner life, we refrain from acting. But if it's wholesome, Then we act, and we do what we can in this world. And sometimes it doesn't happen that way, and that's how it goes, too. We have to accept it that way as well. We do have a huge influence over how we respond to the events of this world, of what's already happened. 
we can refrain, as I just described, from rushing into a reaction when it's out of compulsion, or it's a reaction to get even, or a reaction from an uninvestigated judgment or opinion that we have about someone or something. When we can take time to understand, and maybe it's just a moment of equanimity that makes all the difference. It doesn't mean that we have to sit down and think about it for hours or days or even minutes, but we just can take some time to understand what's going on out there, what's going on in here, and then we can respond. So this is an often uh, told story, but a lot of people say that some of these words um, that were said to me have had a a long-term effect on their own practice. So I just want to repeat it, and maybe it'll have the same effect for you. Uh, There was a time when our youngest daughter, uh, Therese, um, whom Steve helped me raise from the age of 13, I knew that he must be sure about me if he accepted a 13-year-old as well. (laughs) So, but when she was younger than that, she was going through a squabble with her her father, her birth father, and um, there was a lot of screaming and door slamming and shouting with one another. They were in another room making a big fuss, to say the least, and Manindra and I were sitting at the table eating. I was sitting like here, and Manindra was sitting on, on this side of the table looking in that direction. So he was at my side. So they started shouting and screaming at one another. And all of a sudden, our daughter uh, rushed around me, you know, stomping and going down the hallway, around Manindra, down the hallway to her room. Her father was right behind her, a wonderful father. um, And he was a wonderful husband and just parted ways. Anyway, she went into her room, slammed the door, locked it, and her father said, open this door, and she screamed out, no, and he said, open this door now, no. In the meantime, I'm so embarrassed, (laughs) you know, I was slinking in my seat, I wanted to shout, but then I would make it worse, you know, that, uh, my, my reaction would have actually been if Manindra wasn't there to shout, but it, He was there, so (laughs) he was recovering from surgery, and I wanted it to be the best life for him, you know. But it wasn't. It wasn't how I wanted it to be. It was terrible. And so um, he said, uh, my my ex-husband, I call him my husband, he um, said, open this door, I'll break, or I'll break it down. And she said, go ahead. (laughs) And so he did. He kicked the door down. And, uh, but anyway, I got up after Manindra put his hand on my fore, on my left forearm. And he looked at me with the most compassionate eyes and, and the most steady, balanced way. And I just felt the calmness in his hand over my arm, and he said, surrender to the law. In other words, he was saying, the law is, this is how it is, the Dharma. This is how life is unfolding right now, right here. Can you accept it as it is? Surrender to the law. And it's what I say to myself a lot when there's pain in the body, when there's same, you know, things happening now with other human beings in my life, grandchildren sometimes, surrender to the law. This is how it is right now. That was really hard to go through. I saw the far enemy arise. The far enemy of uh, equanimity is reactivity, which is uh, in two parts, aversion and attachment, both reactivities. When we don't like how it is, that's aversion. We react. 
in, in the Course. There's many intensities of it. And when we want it to be a different way, of course, I wanted it to be different. I was clinging to that, so I was so disappointed. So that's attachment. So the far enemy of, uh, of equanimity is reactivity in two parts. So surrendering to the law helped me to understand that the desire that I had for it to be perfect it, you know, created this strong reactivity in my own heart. That was one of the causes and conditions, not just the outer cause for you know, the family doing what they were doing, but the inner cause of that reactivity was this desire for it to be perfect. And of course, nothing is. And uh, one of the other causes and conditions, not just the outer condition of all that ill will and aversion that was showing up in my family, one of the inner conditions for that uh, suffering, that reactivity, was the uh, aversion to, you know, my own aversion to what was going on. So we see the outer conditions and the inner conditions that are happening. Manindra didn't comment on that event after all. I still look back and think, you know, how he was not just being polite or gracious, but it truly came from a very equanimous sense of who he really is. And uh, he didn't comment, he didn't judge, he was just, you know, when I went to him afterwards, he would just say, it's okay, you know, it, it's, it's just how life goes, things like that. It's how life is. Even in India, he says, it's like this. <laughs> so. so the lessons are clear by accepting how it is. There's a clear experience of the moment. There can be a clearer experience of the moment because there's no delusion in that moment. We're not swept away by how we think it should be or by how it is so we can respond in a better way. There have been times when he used that phrase, um, surrender to the law. This is how it is. And so I just want to mention another story with him that I would, a- I would tell him sometimes, uh, why, ask him sometimes, why is it this way and that way in the world? Why, you know, why? 30 years ago, I mean 30 years ago, 37 years ago when I moved to Maui, it was so pristine and beautiful, and now there's so much construction and building and all of that. But you, you could, we live in a place where you could look down and see Kihei. Probably some of you have been there. And there were hardly any lights there at all. And now it's just, you know, we have to close the blinds because the lights keep us up at night. Um, and I was telling him, uh, Manindraji, it, it's so, there's so much more traffic now. I wish it was like that now, you know. But, and I said, there's so much more traffic now, and I was complaining about it and saying, why is it this way? And he said, this is how it is, surrender to the law. I mean, he, he was just all like, okay, this is how it goes. You know, there was building all around us, but he says, Everything is progressing. It's not going backwards. It's going forwards. And this is the way the world goes. There's more people. There's more building. There's more manufacturing. The world is deteriorating. Everything's getting old. Even the earth is getting old, you know. And if you want it to be young again, you're in the wrong world. <laughs> go to the deva realms. That's where it's happening, you know. Everything is, you, you can go to the pleasure groves. That's the way it will be there. It lasts, the beauty lasts there for a long, long time, but not here, not on this realm of existence. This is the way it is. Can you surrender to that? Surrender to the law. So the reactivity is the far enemy of uh, equanimity. So all, all the time, you know, we, we need to ask ourselves, am I seeing the world with quiet eyes? Can I see the world without that reactivity? Just understanding this is the way 
the world is going, inwardly and outwardly. Can we do the best we can in this world, but not expect it to be the way it was, you know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago? We do the best so it can be in the best possible way for this time and space. It helps me to discern whether I'm drawing on an inner reservoir of inner quietude and balance from which more harmony can be created and supported instead of you know, putting disharmony in the world all the time by my, mis- my own misunderstanding of how things are. Am I harming others through the, the habit patterns that I have? And I still see them acted out in me in the world. Of course, they're with a lot less vigor now, and there's the roots of them are weakened through years of practice, but they're still there. So I know about greed and hatred and delusion. I'm not speaking from a place of being uh, totally enlightened. Steve and I were um, chuckling about a wonderful, there was a, a big magazine, you know, the Insight Journal, that was all about enlightenment. And there were many, many, many articles on enlightenment. And, and uh, there was this, just this one little phrase that one of our elder teachers, Ruth Dennison, put in there. They d- couldn't get much out of her about enlightenment. So she said, I, t- I love this. It was the best one of all. She said, I will report about enlightenment when I am enlightened. (laughs) In the meantime, I will practice dharma, patience, generosity, and the dignity of non-self. I love that, you know, because we're still a self in the world, and, uh, you know, even when we see the not-self characteristic of a lot of things in the world, We still have a lot of work to do. So in our training here, what we're learning is how to open to and be more clear about the inner terrain. That's what being on retreat is all about. I mean, we we do what we can in the world. We go to our meetings and all of that to better our community, our family, our society, the environment. We do everything we can to do that. We don't hold back, and many of you do that. And, uh, but we need to know the inner terrain, and that's the world we're exploring here when we come on retreat. We're learning how to let go of long-held wrong understanding and patterns that cause suffering, more suffering in ourselves and in the world. It takes a lot of strength, a lot of steady, spacious balance to do this. This is not um, a practice for, for, the, for sissies. <laughs> I, I remember um, I, I was reading one of these um, books that were kind of a junk book, you know, I picked up somewhere. And uh, it was a book about spies. I don't really read that kind of, (laughs) really I don't, ask Steve. (laughs) But one time I picked this up and um, there was a guy, one spy was talking to another spy and they were talking about, you know, how they are good spies. One spy said, well, I practice Vipassana. (laughs) Really, they said that in the book. And the other spy said, you do? And he said, that sissies uh, is not for the weak at heart. That that practice is not for the weak at heart. You know, he kind of knew that it was was a practice you had to be strong at (laughs) to come to. (laughs) I think it was Mark Twain who said, self-discovery is not often good news. It's one humiliation after another. Because we really have to see honestly where we're coming from. You know, that's why there's that book, you know, don't, don't look down on the defilements because uh, they will laugh at you. This is just right straight out there. Somebody came 
in practice in an in interview the other day and said, it's true, I thought, you know, I thought I was over this or something, and I, then I realized I saw a defilement right back there, just saying that, ha ha, I gotcha, I gotcha. When they hadn't seen it before, act something, acted something out. So from a more truthful relationship with our inner world, we're able to face the outer world, engaging with it in a, in a place that's more easeful, in a place where, because we've got more confidence about ourselves. Why do we have not so much confidence sometimes? Because we don't know our inner world. We can't really, there's something, I speak for myself, there's something in me that can't really trust myself because I really don't know where I'm coming from sometimes. And by knowing myself more, I feel more confident about where I'm coming from. So one of our colleagues calls this quality, the ability to stand in the center and see it from all sides. You know, be the middle path where we can see all sides, what's beneficial, what's not beneficial what will lead to happiness, what will lead to suffering. This takes a good measure of equanimity. So, because usually we're trying to run away from what's unpleasant, and we're running towards what's pleasant. A good deal of delusion is there. But when we can stand in the middle and really open with honesty to see all sides, that's equanimity. That's the kind of balance we're looking for. When we have a lot of patience with what's going on. I talked about patience the other night. Patience supports equanimity. Equanimity supports patience. We can maintain our steadiness. Steadiness is one of the functions of equanimity. The metaphor in uh, the verses of the Dhammapada says, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame, gain or loss, joy or sorrow. This is equanimity, not stirred by the winds of change, because we become familiar with them. We can see it coming. It's like uh, in nature, you sense a storm brewing, and then you say, oh, I need protection. You can't be out here in this storm. So you, you get in a place that's protected. And maybe you see the storm from a protected place, and you know what to do then. Um, sometimes we see the storms of our own hearts coming. And we, because we know the terrain of our hearts, we, we know what thoughts come first, what kind of words come to us, what kind of feelings come in the body, what kind of emotions come in the mind and heart. And we, we sense that kind of storm brewing. And so we say to ourselves, I need some protection. Maybe it's compassion, maybe it's equanimity, maybe it's the, the strength of mindful attention, maybe it's saying the precepts and refuges or getting help from our friends. So we rest the mind before it falls into extremes because we know the inner terrain. Also, we know the inner terrain with, uh, with equanimity. You can deal with the situation in some kind of calmness then. But what about when reactivity already arises in the heart? What then? How do we, we've already, the outer event, event has happened, and it's like, whoa, we don't like that. We strike out against it. But we strike out against it with the reactivity of aversion, say, as an example. So we've had the outer event happening and the inner event. How do we face that now? And so a lot of times, more than often, uh, we need to bring our attention to what has already occurred in our own hearts. We need to turn our attention to, okay, this is how it is right now in here. And so as you might have noticed, it's what in sort of the instructions and the guidance and the way that we've 
try to uh, help you respond to your own experiences to turn your attention to what's going on already in your heart and saying, okay, can I accept what's happening in my own heart right here, right now? That's a big part of our practice in meditation, to accept this, what's going on right here. And that's what we have to learn in a way much more than learning about reactivity to the outer world. It's learning how to be equanimous with our inner world. So just an example of this. One time I was in a conversation with someone, a girlfriend, a friend of mine, and um, someone that I'm close to on many levels. And I noticed she was very strong about something. And so there was a very a, a strong sense of like mm, standing up for her rights and whatever she was going through. And so I noticed in myself, uh, in, in relationship to her, this is how it is for you right now. Okay, so that's a relationship in the best way I could at the moment, a relationship of equanimity to what was going on in her or in the outer world. So it's saying, okay, this is how it is for you right now. But when I look closely <laughs> at what was really going on within me, I could see that it wasn't totally equanimous, that there was some degree or level or a little bit of, of chaos in my own heart where I felt agitated. And I didn't have to say it out loud, but I could just with honesty say to myself, okay, this is how it is for me right now. Agitation. I, I, I don't like what's going on out there. But you know, when you learn in the world, you, you don't say everything you're thinking or else you'd be in big trouble. So you just, you just notice, okay, this is how it is for me in my own heart. And I realized that it wasn't a good place for me to keep going with her in the conversation. So I just said, I think I'll stop now because I, I don't feel that I'm coming from the clearest space. And I, I remembered His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, that's the inner disarmament. When you just stop right there and you don't keep going because you know it's, it's just going to cause more disharmony. That's the inner disarmament. So, disarmament. so I said, I think I'll stop. I'm, I don't think I'm coming from the clearest place right now. And she said, yeah, that's true. You're not coming from the clearest <laughs> place. <laughs> wow. You know, it was really a cause for me to like, okay, it really is a place to stop right now. <laughs> so, well, I didn't go on, you know. I, I just really had to stop. So far enemy reactivity and reactivity towards the outer, reactivity towards what's already reacted in your own mind. And so I wanted to talk about that mostly because that's the, the far enemy, something that we see all the time. But the near enemy is apathy. It's indifference. It's, we feel like there's emotional emptiness inside sometimes, which is really a lot of, res a lot of delusion. There's kind of a distance, a disconnection. There's all, this is almost coming from an avoidance, from like <laughs> kind of ignoring what's going on. There can be a coldness or an aloofness. This is apathy, indifference, the near enemy. It's called the near enemy because it feels like equanimity, but it's false equanimity. It's really important to get to know this quality or how this arises in us when we just say, you know, okay, uh, I feel equanimous, but really it's like I don't want to feel this place. We want to avoid the unpleasantness of this place. It sometimes it feels cold to ourselves. It can feel cold to others. It may feel like a resignation, a helplessness of, okay, I'm just going to give up. 
and we allow ourselves to be a doormat to life. So this is the, the near enemy of equanimity. Sometimes it feels like we're, we're just pretending to be equanimous, but we're really in denial of the gravity of the situation. So all of this is around apathy, distancing, feeling disconnected, avoiding, coldness, aloofness, I don't care, emotional emptiness, resignation, helplessness. This is also not balanced. It's like we're sinking into what's happening instead of standing in a clear place, feeling totally connected to it, feeling the suffering of what's going on inside and or outside, but not falling prey to it at all, staying clear. With, that's why we need the spaciousness. So um, when we feel that disconnection, it's also helpful to say, this is how it is in my heart right now. Maybe we feel distance or helpless, and we maybe we actually, when we can admit to that, we, we notice that we need the distance because we might fall prey to whatever the reactivity might be. So when we see it that way, we can say, distance is wise. Distance is wise. So apathy, indifference, that's a near enemy. Being able to assess the whole situation um, completely. What, what's the far enemy? Reactivity. How is that happening in my heart? How is the near enemy of apathy? Is that happening in my heart? Being totally connected to what's happening. So this is the terrain of the heart uh, in, in relationship to what's going on in the world. And can we bring equanimity to it? Can we see it with quiet eyes? Can we open to the greater vision, to the spacious balance? of equanimity. So the vision I hold, it gives me at least a memory of what's, what it's like. And, and oftentimes, I, I do feel that equanimity in life. There needs to be more of it, of course, in my own heart. But uh, I want to tell you this, this story of what actually happened, what's really true, and a vision, an actual experience, a vision of feeling of this equanimity. It was many years ago, I think it was 2002, when I visited Manindra in Bodh Gaya. And um, as a, a Dharma teacher, only a Dharma te- a true Dharma teacher from India would ask you to do, is I said, well, what should we do in India? He said he wanted me to visit the holy sites with him and didn't have much time, so two holy sites where the Buddha gained enlightenment, had in his enlightenment and uh, in, in Bodh Gaya, and also the other place in Sarnath where he, he gave the first noble truth. And um, so we went to those two places, and he also wanted me to visit Varanasi because, he said, he wanted me to see the dead bodies floating on the river. I mean, he said it just straight out like that. And uh, so I said, Okay, let's go. You know, so uh, we did the two visits, Bodh Gaya and, and Sarnath, and then we went to visit Varanasi. So, as a, the tourists usually do, and, and all the spiritual seekers, they go out before dawn. We rented a boat to go down the, the Ganges River, and we were floating down the banks of. Um, the Ganges on this early morning before the sun rose. And what you do when you float down the river and, and on one side of the banks are the burning ghats, so where the, the bodies are burning on, on the riverside. And you can see the, the bodies burning on that side. I mean, the boats sometimes float near enough to the side where you can see the actual bodies, you can see the their families crying for the loved one. And so on one side was uh, death, you know, and sorrow 
the family's mourning in sadness and in grief and the, the, the fire is burning and the body is just laying right on top, part of life. On the other side of the boat, you could look out and see beyond the horizon was the rising sun, you know, the beautiful um, uh, crest of, of the sun and the light coming before that, shining and making the whole horizon bright great ball of yellow-orange peaking and cresting a birth of a new day on one side, death on the other side, great appreciation and joy on one side and on the other side, sorrow and just opening to the whole thing, not leaving out anything. And then on, on one side too, the despair, the helplessness, of the poor and destitute in, in Varanasi and all along the banks of the river, even people coming beside us, beggars in boats, asking us for, for alms. And then on the other side, you know, having a teacher. Having a teacher is one of the great blessings, even the Buddha said, it's one of the great blessings to have a teacher. And um, the good fortune the happiness of having someone beside you and even having my teacher hold my hand you know I can't do that with Seda Upandita but <laughs> Manindra was like my father my uncle so holding my hand and, um, so much uh, feeling of joy for that and then the beauty you know the sun rising uh, over the Ganges River and what was on one side. It is, I love India. It's so raw. There's a beauty of that rawness. And then on the other side was just how it is in India. You know, stuff floating all in the Ganges River. So it's so totally, um, so filled with bacteria that it's unimaginable. Um, I happened to be with a friend of mine who's a scientist, and she said, you can't imagine the bacteria in this river, and yet people drink from it. And so uh, beauty on one side, rawness on the other, happiness on one side, sorrow on the other, birth on one side, death on the other. And so the whole time, you know, I hear Manindra saying to me from before time, saying, surrender to the law, surrender to the law, surrender to how it is in life. It's all of this. Can you open to all of this? So equanimity, that's what helps us along the way. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.